You're listening to Talking Liberties with the ACLU of Illinois. Here's your host, Ed Yonka, Director of Communications and Public Policy. Thanks, Max. In the last episode of Talking Liberties, we discussed how a bill becomes a law in the Illinois legislature and how you can make your voice heard to make change in Illinois. If you've not had a chance to listen to that episode, I'm going to encourage you to stop, hit pause, and go back and listen to that before we dive into this discussion about the ACLU's agenda for 2021 in Springfield. It is, I can promise you, a bold, diverse, and full agenda. And so we need someone who knows the terrain of the state capitol and has worked on ACLU issues for years in order to fully explore it. So fortunately, we have just the right person. Returning to the podcast is Kadeen Bennett the Director of Advocacy and Intergovernmental Affairs at the ACLU of Illinois. So, Kadeen, welcome back to Talking Liberties. Thank you. It's great to be here. So the last time you were with us, we were talking about the agenda for 2019. And before we dive into 2021, the pandemic obviously hit in 2020, and the legislature was kept apart, and so they were kept voting for many of our bills that we might have tried to move the last session. So I'm wondering how that has affected this session and the pandemic in general. Are there special rules? Are there things that kind of got backed up? I mean, how do you look at this, something like this? Well, as you know, and I think I may have mentioned at the last time I was here, um, going to Springfield is perhaps my most favorite thing ever during session. And the impact of the pandemic and, you know, outside of the very serious toll it took on so many people and systems that were already broken and overburdened is that what it looks like to do legislative work has changed. So last session, the General Assembly essentially stopped working between March and May for a bit, and then they came back with really focused COVID-specific legislation that they wanted to move that was time-sensitive. Then we had the summer and the uprisings that happened then that led to the Illinois Black Caucus deciding to push forward some pillars that address structural racism, including uh, a pillar that dealt with policing and criminal legal system reform. So that started our January off, and it was all done remotely for us as lobbyists and advocates, though the General Assembly did go down to Springfield. And with this new session, a lot's changed. We have new leadership in the House. So former Speaker Madigan is former Speaker, and now we have a new Speaker, Speaker Welch, who has been a sponsor on a number of our bills, including one I'm sure we're going to talk about today. Um, And so he's now in this new role. Senate President Harmon is still there. And what it looks like to participate is is different. So now we have Zoom hearings, uh, which means that you don't have to leave your home at all to participate and testify. (laughs) There are pros and cons of that for sure. And the General Assembly, they've been not going, especially the House, they haven't been going in every week. But now as we are on the last day of spring break, which didn't quite feel like a spring break because there was committee hearings every single day, the General Assembly, the plan is for them to be in. And it sounds like they will be in between next week, every week, some weeks, Tuesday to Friday, some other weeks, Monday through Friday until May 31st. So we're in that special stretch where we just have to hope we make it until June 1st. So before we talk about things for 2021, I want to pick up on one thing you said. 
the criminal justice and policing reform bill that was passed in the veto session this year, or actually in the in the lame duck session. I wonder if you just talk a little bit about that bill and, and sort of in your mind what it did. And obviously, you you can imagine I'm also going to ask you if it was enough or if we there's more we need to do. Yeah, I mean, it's the Safety Act, and I know how much you hate bill numbers, so I'm not going to use the bill number, but this was a piece of legislation, uh, an omnibus bill over 700 pages that was sponsored by Senator Sims and Rep Slaughter. And the bill is a really good first step. So some of the highlights based on the work that we're interested in is that it removes the sworn affidavit requirement when somebody's filing a complaint against a police officer. That's been an issue that we and some of our coalition partners have been pushing for quite a while. And we know that in communities where there's police abuse and misconduct, many victims don't feel safe reporting misconduct unless it can be done anonymously. Connected to that, it created an anonymous complaint policy that would allow any person to file notice of a complaint. And it would require a state entity, the Illinois Law Enforcement Training and Standards Board, to investigate that complaint. That requirement to actually investigate, I think, is really important. It gets rid of the ability for law enforcement to destroy records related to complaints, investigations, and adjudications of police misconduct. A place where, and you know, the sworn affidavit language is language that we submitted. The other place where we spent a lot of time is the use of force policy. So a lot of the language that the ACLU submitted made it in there. And basically it spells out for police and the public when police may use force. And it makes clear that lethal force should not be used to protect property or in response to minor offenses, that it should be prohibited unless absolutely necessary to prevent imminent death or serious bodily harm. It's one of those things where when you read some of those limitations, it's like, wow, we really had to have a law. (laughs) You have to write that in the law. It's just so surprising. Yeah. I mean, like thinking that you can't use force as punishment or retaliation. Like those are such basics. Like you can't aim rubber bullets at someone's head or you can't just randomly discharge them into a crowd. It it just feels like it's, it's stuff that was both transformational and pretty basic at the same time in terms of a floor for when force can be used. My favorite, one of the my favorite things that we've done is we prevent police departments from using or requesting militarized equipment. So like grenade launchers and bayonets. Yeah. 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 Because every small town across Illinois needs officers with a grenade launcher. I just don't understand it. Yeah. And then one of the big in the areas of criminal justice reform places that there was significant improvement is the the ending the use of money bond. And the idea being that it shouldn't, somebody shouldn't be held in jail pretrial based on their ability to pay to get out. It should be based on whether or not they're a flight risk or a danger to others. We've done a a past episode all around that and uh, on that issue. And it's really great to see those kinds of things signed into law. But you didn't get everything you wanted on policing, did you? No, sadly not. Well, in terms of use of force, we wanted more robust data collection. We wanted more limitations on the kinds of militarized equipment one should not use. And we also wanted to have an end to qualified immunity. We first got that language in, but then it was removed and it was replaced with a task force. But I mean, that doesn't stop us. So we decided to reintroduce legislation on that this session. So talk a little bit about, for those who might not know, what is qualified immunity? 
So qualified immunity is this blanket protection provided to law enforcement where it provides them a protection for when they violate someone's constitutional rights in the course of them doing their duty. So instead of the question being whether or not they violated someone's constitutional rights, the question becomes whether or not they qualify for qualified immunity and they get that blanket protection. And it essentially creates a hurdle. So let's say a police officer does something wrong The hurdle becomes, well, will this be a situation where you get this blanket protection? And for a lot of people, they end up with that protection because, you know, there are technical components of this law. It came out of, you know, it's federal law that was created, but it's a body of case law that talks about some kind of clearly established standards. So essentially, the question courts look to is, did this thing that the officer did that potentially violated constitutional rights, did it happen in the exact way that it happened before? So you have a case where it hinges on the difference between um, an officer shot somebody when they were kneeling versus when they're lying down. And that results in so much harm. So instead of then assessing, was it a constitutional violation? Was, is there harm? Should that person who suffered the harm have some level of compensation? Should that police officer who violated someone's rights have a civil court say, yes, you did violate someone's rights? Those questions don't even happen because of this blanket protection. So there's a bill this session that would do away with qualified immunity, at least in Illinois state courts where you can get at it through the legislature. That is correct. So can I use a bill number? Right you now? can use you can use bill numbers. Yes. Really you can even so, say sponsors too. I'm, I'm oh. here for you today. So House Bill 1727, it's a bill that's sponsored by Rep Tarver called the Bad Apples and Law Enforcement Accountability Act. You know, I think sometimes for us in our work, we feel like it's more like an orchard versus the bad apple. But right. you know, this bill would make police accountable for their actions when they violate someone's constitutional rights. And specifically, the bill would allow a person to bring a lawsuit in Illinois state court against a police officer officer who, while on duty, they violate that person's rights under our constitution, which includes Article 1, Section 3, which prohibits police from using excessive force. And again, it would allow for these claims of constitutional violations to be assessed on a case-by-case basis on their merits. And we think it's important because that kind of assessment would lead to more just and equitable outcomes for folks who are harmed by law enforcement. And it would also enable police departments to identify and discipline those bad apples. Right. It gives them some sense of who's done wrong and gives them more tools in order to cull those uh, bad apples from their ranks. Yeah. And it increases accountability and trust, because I think, as we know, a lot of people don't trust the broken policing system that exists. And sometimes people feel like they can't trust court systems either. So hopefully this bill could result in um, support for people who are filing these cases when something pretty horrific happened. As of the time we're recording this in early April, that bill is out of committee and on the floor of the House. It is on the floor of the House, yes. So So, bouncing around a little bit, I want to talk about another bill and another issue that people, I think, may not be thinking about necessarily, because we all have these kind of personal household devices that we use for, you know, like Alexa or the ring doorbell, et cetera, for our, our convenience. You've got a bill that kind of addresses that the data that's gathered from those devices. 
Yeah, so we have a bill, House Bill 2553. It's sponsored by Rep. Williams. Um, for folks who follow our issues, she has been our go-to sponsor on privacy issues for quite a long time. So the Protecting Household Privacy Act, we decided to move it because it seemed that everyone now has an Alexa or a Ring or a Nest, and we wanted to put something in place that would protect people's privacy. So this bill would essentially require law enforcement to get a warrant before they're able to access information from somebody's household device. We would also, you know, so people are able to give their consent, but if not, there needs to be a warrant. We also have some language around how long law enforcement can hold on to the data and then limit and, and who it could be shared with. Because those devices are always on and they're always listening. So they capture an enormous amount of information, right? It has the potential to, yes. And I think we're going to see more and more of these kinds of devices in place. And yeah. also your home is your most sacred private place. So we do think there should be some level of restriction. Surprisingly, this bill um, and a lot of our get a warrant law enforcement bills have gone pretty smoothly. And I, I'm just surprised at the level of opposition from law enforcement to this bill. So it means we must be doing something good. One of the things I know we're going to talk about the, you know, I wanted to talk about the positive agenda, but I just want to drop in here. Every once in a while, you have to oppose bills and sometimes to oppose bills to protect gains you've made in the past. And one of the areas where we're seeing that this year is around the Biometric Information Privacy Act, which is a law that we've talked about on the podcast before. And I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about what's happening with those bills right now. It feels like almost everyone decided they wanted to file a bill to weaken our BIPA law. So it's one of the most privacy protective laws in the country where it protects someone's private biometric information. These are, you know, features of so your fingerprint, iris scan, face scan, things that can't be replicated. It requires companies to give notice and get consent if they want to use your biometric information. It's pretty simple, um, but there have been a series of bills that would work to weaken it. There are some bills that would call for a full repeal of BIPA. There are some bills that would get rid of the notice requirement or the consent requirement. Um, there are some bills that would uh, limit the ability for folks to litigate when their rights have been violated. So we've been spending a lot of time opposing those bills and really, talking to legislators about how simple it is to fulfill this requirement. Yeah. Yeah. Just yeah. And it's a bill that's worked for more than a decade that suddenly, as you said, everybody seems to want to try to come after and attack. Yeah. And it's also a bill that other states are trying to, are models for other, other states. Yeah. Yeah. Which is really the amazing part of, of that, I would think, too. I think one of the other really kind of under the radar issues that you're you're tackling this year in Springfield has to do with Illinois' name change law, the way in which that law is written in a restrictive way that really harms people. You know, I wonder if that's another one you could talk to the listeners about. This one is House Bill 2542. It's uh, sponsored by Representative Cassidy. Again, I, I feel like she's a sponsor we go to often. And uh, <laughs> we're working in partnership with the Chicago House Transformative Justice Law Project and the Chicago Bar Foundation. And as you shared, Illinois' name change law is one of the most restrictive in the nation. So this bill would repeal and amend those restrictions and those outdated provisions. And 
for example, people in Illinois with felony convictions are denied the ability to change their name, including on their identity documents for a full decade after they complete their sentence. And we're only um, one of eight states with this kind of restriction. We are also one of 12 states that would prohibit name change for people who are in registries. And then one of two states that would prohibit name changes for uh, identity theft convictions. All of our bills are important and special. And this one, though, we've had the privilege of working with folks more closely who are directly impacted by this issue. There are folks who may have gone to prison, they're returning citizens, and for years and years, one of the folks who testified in committee has been unable to change their name for over 20 years. And this person is- 20 years? Yeah. This person is a trans woman who, by virtue of the inability to change her name, is in the space of always feeling that their safety is in jeopardy. If they're not out to someone, if they go to a bank to, you know, deposit a check, then somebody would ask for an ID and the name on the ID is not reflective of the name that she goes by. One person shared in committee just the importance of being able to go by your name, the name that you choose, and the law makes no sense. Like, it's unnecessary. So this is a pretty important piece of legislation. And it's also something that's helpful, not just to folks who are trans, it's also helpful to folks who are survivors of trafficking, where it's not in their best interest, to, if they want to change their name, to have to keep a name where their abuser may find them. This bill is also helpful for folks who are married or getting married. So we all know and from our work that for people who go to prison who are returning citizens, there are already so many barriers that they have to jump through and hoops. And this is just another one and it's unnecessary. And um, we are going to work hard to make sure this bill becomes law. I just want to underscore hearing these people who've been affected like literally going to to a new job or interacting with a police officer or just the simple thing that we all take as a as a, just a normalcy like it's a moment of anxiety and dread for them because it could out them and and create all kinds of problems yeah i mean as you may probably remember one of our witnesses talked to us about the experience of looking for a new place and they yeah. Scheduled an appointment, they got to the appointment, and then when they had to fill out the form, the application, the names didn't match. And then that person was showing the place, all of a sudden, it wasn't quite as available as it was before. And it's just highly problematic and must be changed. Yeah. You talked about working in coalition around that bill. And, and so one of the other places where I know you're working in coalition and trying to change an old antiquated law is around the law that criminalizes behavior for people who are living with HIV. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that effort, because, you know, I think sometimes we forget about these laws that were passed in the midst of the AIDS crisis. In coalition with the Illinois HIV Action Alliance, we're working on Senate Bill 655, which is sponsored by Senator Peters. And the bill would repeal the criminal transmission of HIV law, though not so fun fact for the people who are impacted is that there's no actual requirement of transmission in order for this bill to apply. So it basically treats 
HIV differently from any other disease or STI, and it's criminalizing a whole class of people, even when their conduct poses little or no risk of HIV transmission. And so it doesn't help in terms of safety or public health. And instead, it really stigmatized people living with HIV, and it has an impact on their families and their communities. I mean, one of the things we hear from people is because they know about this law. And one of the components says that if you know about your status, essentially, if you have sex, and even if there's no transmission, you could face a felony conviction. So for some people, in order to protect themselves, they don't get tested. So they don't know their yeah. status. And we know that there are scenarios where people do disclose their status. And even so, they may end up being charged with this law. So it makes behavior that's like legal, like consensual sex, illegal. And that threat for folks who are living with HIV with arrest and prosecution and incarceration is just like a, a huge, huge fear. And it treats HIV so different from any other STI. And we're in 2020, but it's like we're living with laws from like the 1980s, 1990s. But it is the stuff from the time of the AIDS hysteria. Yeah. So speaking of the greatest hits, you know, one of the other things you're constantly trying to push back against, all of these laws that really came into place because of the war on drugs. And one of the bills the ACLU is, is advancing this term really tries to take a different approach from the war on drugs. And I, I wonder if you could share some information about that. Yeah, shout out to my colleague, Ben Riddell, who I'm sure has been on this program before. He like has, yes. talk show, like, And he anyway. will again. <laughs> so um, House Bill 3447 is sponsored by Rep Ammons, and the title of that is Reducing Barriers to Recovery Initiative. Um, and it's done in conjunction as part of a, a coalition with the same name. This initiative would reclassify small-scale drug possession from a felony to a Class A misdemeanor, and it offers real diversion in the form of behavioral health assessments and access to treatment for people who need it, rather than incarceration. And as drafted, the bill would allow expungement and retroactive sentencing to help repair the harm of past drug convictions and the lives of people across Illinois. And you're right, we know that the so-called war on drugs approach that uses criminal prosecution as the default response to folks who use or are in possession of drugs has failed. I don't know how much more we have to say that. And I think in some ways people get it, but it's still, th that's the default. So this is an, an attempt to right-size this broken system yet again in another way. And for folks who are dealing with addiction or where support would be beneficial is a public health approach and not an incarceration approach. And by the way, we know not only has it failed, but from polling that you and I have done together, we also know that, that the voters of Illinois recognize that and are ready to move on to something else. We definitely are. I mean, it's so interesting for so many of the criminal legal system and policing reforms that we are pushing and have pushed recently. The public is with us. I mean, yeah. it's overwhelming. Um, yeah. I just want all of the legislators to get us to 60 and 30 to be with us. <laughs> So I'm going to lift the curtain here and reveal a, a little secret that I know, and so now all the listeners can know, which is that I know that one of the first bills you worked on as a lobbyist at the ACLU was around modernizing comprehensive sexual health education in Illinois, but you're back at this again this year. 
Sure, Ahmed. So how many years ago when I was a young, naive, uh, new employee at the ACLU? When you barely knew the way down I-55. I don't even think I even left I-55 as before. I was even in the legislative, I guess when I first started, where I was like, you know, if policy is the right thing, then the people will say yes. I quickly learned that was not the case. But this (laughs) still, I feel like, will make me that young idealist person again. So we are working, and my colleague Chelsea is a partner in this work to pass the Illinois Healthy Youth Act, which would build on current sexual health education standards in Illinois to include a comprehensive toolbox of knowledge and skills on topics including anatomy and physiology, adolescent growth and development, healthy relationships, personal safety, identity, STIs, including HIV, and will provide information that young people need to make responsible and informed decisions about their health and well-being throughout their lives. Um, Not just today, but this is really forever. And we've been working on getting to a place where we have comprehensive sexual health education available for young people for quite a while. And I remember one of the conversations I had at, I think we did this road trip for reproductive rights. And I was at a college campus in this, talking to this person who worked at a health center. She was telling me this story about sitting in the cafeteria and across from her were college students who were talking about the fact that they take prenatal vitamins in order to not get pregnant. And these are folks who are in college. And it's mind boggling that that was the thought. And of course, thankfully this person went over and intervened to explain (laughs) his work, which is really good. But I think for one of the great things about our bill is that it removes stigmatizing language that exists in our current law. So when we went from abstinence only to abstinence plus contraception, we were in a time where it was before marriage equality where we couldn't get language out of the law that said, you know, we should only teach about heterosexual monogamous marriage. And, you know, after we passed marriage equality, I feel like we talked about this soon after, like, oh, can this be the time to finally get this bad language out? So what this our Healthy Youth Act does is that it removes language that's stigmatizing to lesbian, gay, bisexual, trans, intersex, and asexual folks. And I think it's really important those last two or last three, yeah. because yeah. for a lot of folks who are young people who are trans, they don't see themselves in our sexual no. education. Some of them do because they go to great schools, but it's not a uniform requirement for folks who are intersex. When you talk about anatomy and physiology, are they reflected there? We want to make sure that they are. And for our bill, we want to respect folks who are Abstinential marriage, if that's what you want, great. But we want to make sure that when you're married and you're ready to have sex or you're ready to even understand yourself and relationships and boundaries, you have the information that you need. We also wanted to take away, there was language that was really stigmatizing to young people who are pregnant and parenting, that that's a choice if they want to make, that we want to make sure that the curriculum is supportive of that too. And then there's some folks who just may be asexual. So our bill isn't, you know, I think that sometimes our opposition thinks that when you talk about comprehensive sexual health information, you're talking about like a how-to guide to have sex. It's yes. far from it. It's about what information do I need about healthy relationships? What does consent mean? And all of those conversations change because our bill calls for instruction that's age appropriate. Because what I need to know about consent and good touch, bad touch when I'm in the second grade is really different from conversations about consent in the eighth grade or the 12th grade. So our bill definitely reflects that. The other thing it has is a data collection component. Right now, we have no idea how many schools teach sex ed and we have no idea what materials they're using. So this bill would give us some data on that as well. 
And if I could just say, you know, that idea of a young trans kid sitting in a classroom and just not being recognized at all is, is again, just another thing that just pushes people out of, you know, or makes them feel like they're not part of society and that their, their own health doesn't matter in that way. Yeah, 100%. And we've talked a lot to teachers and students about what they need and, and what they want. And they want sex ed that is medically accurate, age appropriate, culturally appropriate too, so that folks are able, no matter what your background, you're not shamed or stigmatized as you're sitting there getting this information. So the last bill is you had sort of presaged early in the conversation is our effort to repeal the Illinois parental notice law, which is really in many ways kind of the last hurdle we have to accessing reproductive health care for young people in Illinois. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that effort. So Senator Sims has uh, Senate Bill 2190. This bill repeals the requirement that a young person, so somebody who's under 18, would be required to notify an adult family member before they're able to have an abortion. This law was created in a period of time, kind of in the same vein of the you know war on drugs. There's mm-hmm. a war on reproductive choice, a war on women, a war on people who wanted to control their own bodies. And this is a remnant of that law. You know, when I started the ACLU, I was a reproductive rights fellow. And this issue was the issue that I started working on when I first started. And it's great to be in a place where we're able to talk about repeal. But this law, though, was passed in 1995 and a previous version in 83. This law wasn't in effect for quite a long time because of our amazing litigation work at the ACLU for so long, starting with Colleen and up till now. But I think it was probably seven years ago. 2013. That's that's right. The Supreme Court issued rules, which resulted in this law going into effect. And I remember vividly all of the work that we did to create this judicial bypass coordination project, because the law says you have to notify an adult family member or you can go to court to get a waiver of that notification. And as somebody who represented minors um, who had to go to court, it is a huge hurdle and it is scary and it is invasive. And while we do all that we can to make sure that young people are protected, that they have a partner in this process, it creates hurdles that are unnecessary. And this law is unnecessary. Before the law went into effect, we didn't see a need for it. While it's been in effect, we've seen the harm of it and it's time to repeal that law. Wow. Hey, you know what? We actually managed to cover all of the bills in the agenda. But before we go, I'm not letting you go quite yet. Mm. Uh, I just wanted to share, I just wondered if you would share, you know, we we talked the last episode with Chelsea about why it was important for people to get involved and be heard. I wonder if you want to just talk to that for just a moment. Yeah, I think now more than ever, It's really important for legislators to hear from folks about issues that they care about. For a lot of our bills, the other side, they're activated and they're ready to go. I think parental notice is a good example where um, the opposition, this is their last thing for them to fight on. So they're motivated and, and activated. And we need for our side to be motivated and activated. I think, you know, for so many people, the last four years felt like, draining. It was, it felt like you were fighting all the time. And the last year, 
plus of living in a pandemic has been really, really hard. But I think one of the things folks saw with the pandemic is that these broken systems, we know they're broken, but the pandemic just like exposed for so many more people just how broken they are. And for each of these legislative initiatives, these are real people whose lives are gonna be impacted. So where we're trying to remove barriers, we're trying to increase protection. And so whenever you see an email from us that says, hey, call this number or send this email, it makes a huge difference. When it, you get the email that says, fill out the witness slip, it makes a huge difference. And if you care about us at the ACLU and you wanna make sure that we're talking about new bills next year, I really would encourage folks to, to take action, visit that legislator, send something on social media. I mean, we have a whole part of our website where people can go to if you wanna take action. So, and following us on social media is a good way for you to know when it's time to, to take that step. Hey, Kadeen, thanks so much for doing this. I, I really do appreciate you taking the time and kind of walking through all of these as we, as we went along. Thank you, Ed, for this wonderful experience. I should tell our listeners before we go that we'll be back to take a deeper dive into a number of these issues, but this has been incredibly helpful. If you want more information about making your voice heard in Springfield, more information about all of the bills that we talked about today, you can find that by going to our website at www.aclu-il.org slash legislative-action. That's aclu-il.org slash legislative-action. Or it's on the front page of the ACLU of Illinois' website. Thank you for listening to Talking Liberties. We appreciate your joining us. Talking Liberties is produced by Max Bever. Our content supervisor is Kimberly Kozeel. Our executive director is Colleen Connell. You can subscribe to this podcast and rate us. You can contact us directly at Talking Liberties, all one word, at aclu-il.org. And we will be back with more information about many of the issues we discussed today. Thanks for joining us.